Welcome to the ADC Partners Newsletter Podcast, featuring interviews with folks who are shaping sports business, driving sports marketing, or just have interesting stuff to say. Thanks for listening. Dan Rasher, thanks so much for joining us and having this conversation about name image likeness, because obviously this has been all over the news recently, but I think the key word there is recently, like this is not a recent experience for you. You have a long history with NIL. So let's get started. If you could give a quick background about your involvement with NIL and the legal process that kind of led to this recent Supreme Court decision. Absolutely. And Dave, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so we got started in late the late 1990s, actually. Um, and I know you and I had had these conversations, you know, 15, 20 years ago. We were there um, at the ta- outset. Yeah, talking about the anti-competitive practices of the NCAA. And so we, a, a c- couple of us sort of shopped it around with some attorneys and we got this case called the White case. Jason White was a was a fullback at Stanford. And that sort of went nowhere, except it did it did sort of show the court how to put together a class of college athletes uh, because that class was certified, but it didn't really go anywhere. And then Ed O'Bannon sort of kicked off the next phase himself by filing a lawsuit against the NCAA. And that lawsuit was specifically about name, image and likeness. Um, and we, because of our work on the white case, we were brought into that pretty early. That was around 2009. Um, and you know, you may know that that case went all the way through trial and the NCAA was found to be, uh, and you know, an anti-competitive cartel. And so some changes, you know, occurred after that case and during that, around the same time of that trial, the Alston case was filed. Sean Alston was a running back at West Virginia university and that wasn't just questioning NIL. It was just questioning all of the restraints on, you know, that the athletes have in terms of how much money a school should be allowed to pay them. And then, as you as you mentioned, that just went to the Supreme Court, and we heard on Monday that, uh, you know, surprising to me, nine nothing that the uh, you know that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the athletes against the NCAA. So, so that was surprising it, to you, the fact that it was unanimous. You know, it was. I, I guess the best answer is it it was. Um, up until March, or it would have been up until March. So last fall, when the NCAA decided to appeal to the Supreme Court, I was concerned. Mm. Um, I didn't know what this. Re- I figured if the Supreme Court ruled against the athletes, that would sort of be it, uh, unless we got some sort of congressional movement. Um, but the once the hearing occurred in March, the questioning from from Kavanaugh, you know, from from the right and the left uh, side of um, of the Supreme Court was pretty damning against the NCAA. I mean, really skewering them for their practices. I guess we can also just be thankful to the NCAA for offering something can really show some bipartisanship on that. The Supreme Court justices, right? Is there anything else that can do that? Exactly. It's exactly. I mean, it's a nine nothing on a court, you know, that appears to be pretty far apart from one end to the next. So, yeah, that was pretty surprising. So what was your immediate reaction? Right. You hear, okay, nine nothing. You've been involved in this legal action revolving around the NCAA and anti-competitive practices for 15 years going on. Were you jubilant? Were you excited? Were you like, okay, yeah, just business as usual. We got to go on to the next thing. What was, what was your feeling about it? Was it that momentous? I mean, it was, it was exciting to get the Supreme court to say, uh, that amateurism, you know, really is not that 
uh, important of a topic mm. to allow the NCAA to do all these other things, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, we, we had all, we had been saying that and lower courts had said that, but the NCAA kept pointing back to the board of regents case in the, in the mid eighties saying, look, the, you know, someone on the board of regents or, or someone, you know, on the Supreme court had this one line that said that we should be able to do what we want with respect to athletes. So we're going to keep pointing at that. Right. So they had been pointing at that for, you know, the, the, since, since the mid eighties. And mm-hmm. so, in that sense, it was important to get the Supreme Court to say no. You know, that was just a throwaway line, and so emphatically. Yeah, and so emphatically, exactly. So, what do you feel like are going to be some of the immediate implications for athletic departments? Do you think they're going to see a lot of changes right away? I do think that the athletic departments that are already doing everything they can to compete for athletes, mm. you know, the ones at the top of the Power Five, I think they're going to take this and say, okay. What now can we offer the athletes uh, to choose our school over our competitor school? You know, so they can offer up to $5,980 in um, payments that um, tie to educational achievement, right? So they're sort of going to, you know, put that money aside. Such a weird, specific offer, number. It, it's very specific, exactly. It, it became a point of contention in the, in the, you know, after the trial, but you know, what, what, what did that number actually add up to? So is this then like the next arms race for athletic department? We've also seen, you know, like, you know, the palace stadiums and, you know, the sports performance centers and the locker rooms that, you know, look like rock concerts are held there. Does this then just create further separation between the haves and the have nots? Well, so it can, I think I agree with you. So I think it continues what we already see, which is, you know, now they can offer um, payments towards internships, yeah. which the University of Nebraska had already been doing. So that was one of our, our nice little pieces of data showing the court, look, Nebraska has been doing this and we're not sure why the NCAA hasn't stopped them, hmm. but it hasn't caused their fans to sort of run away because they don't like the fact that the athletes are getting an extra $7,500 towards an internship, you know, th- things right. like that. So I agree. It's going to create another level of competition. You know, we saw this when the NCAA, for lack of a better term, deregulated food. If you remember, um, if I, now it's been about six years, but um, there was a point when they controlled how much food right. and so what constituted a meal versus a snack. And they had all these rules and they decided to throw those out. The minute they did that, these Power Five schools immediately started investing in the food that they offer the athletes. I mean, even at the University of Oklahoma, they had food trucks following the athletes around in case they wanted anything. I, mean, I just, was... I just look like a food truck has been following me around. <laughs> and so this is it. It's a, it's the competition. I mean, I, I sort of hope that they focus more on this competition and say, why do we need to spend so much money on building these, these, you know, what I call recruiting palaces. Right. And instead let's focus directly on benefiting the athletes. And I think that's sort of where we're trying to head. Let's talk about the athletes then. So, so what do you think? So if those are the implications for the athletic departments, what about the athletes themselves? Are we going to start seeing multi-million dollar college athletes? Or is there going to be like this avalanche of revenue coming to them? Or do you see this spooling up a bit more slowly? Well, so what's interesting is these two issues have been occurring in parallel. So the the Alston case where the Supreme Court says that the schools now can offer a bit more, but it's still it's still capped. Mm-hmm. And right? I think that the, the big schools are going to sort of move up to that cap pretty quickly. Yeah. The name, image and likeness, as you know, has been sort of happening on the side since O'Bannon, but but in parallel. And California was the first state to pass a law basically saying that the the, the schools of the NCAA couldn't stop athletes from earning money for the use of their name, image, and likeness, right? And the other states started doing that. And so that all kicks off on July 1st. 
again, in, in really in parallel, but separate from from the Austin case. And so I do think you're going to start seeing athletes earn some serious money for the use of their name, image and likeness, um, separate from some of those schools paying athletes a bit more for for, you know, educational achievement. Right. So like the, 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 the athletic department side of this is actually the, the small game in town. NIL potentially represents the big game in town for what they can potentially generate. Absolutely. And I, I'll tell you, I, I see the equilibrium however many years from now being where the schools are involved in the name, image, and likeness directly. Okay. So, you know, so, so the schools already have the relationships with the sponsors, right? The, the school, the as you know, as a sports marketer, the, the best product is one in which the athlete and the school's intellectual property are combined, where right. the athlete can wear the school uniform and then do their, their advertisement or, or post on social media or whatever it is. And so what, So I think the schools are going to do what we see in the, at the professional level, which is sort of scoop up some of these athlete rights, you know, have the athletes sign these group licensing deals. Okay. And then the schools will market them as part of these deals. And so I, I think we, we're, in a, we're in a temporary situation where the schools are supposedly not allowed to get involved in name, image, and likeness, and the athletes have to do it themselves on the outside of school. So essentially a college athletes players association thing where one entity is marketing the images and rights of potentially a lot of people at the same time. Yeah. A lot of people at the same time. And, and so an athlete could do what we see in the pros, which is, you know, jump into the, to the group licensing deal and take part in whatever that leads to, but also separately on the outside decide to do some of their own, um, marketing of themselves. All right. So we've been kind of focusing on the, the, the legal aspects of this. And I want you to put your, because I don't know if everybody knows, you're also a very accomplished sports economist. So put that hat on for just a second, if you will. What are, you, what are we looking at in terms of financial potential for the athletes now that some of these restraints have been removed from how they can monetize their college experience? It's going to be fascinating to watch because if you think about how often do we get to see a market open up? you know, right in front of us, right? Exactly. you know, I mean, we get to watch it and it's not a market that's sort of being created, you know, by some new technology where it sort of starts slowly. I mean, in this sense, it's a market that already exists for, 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 for you and I, who are not college athletes or for any other professional, you know, we're allowed to go out there and market our NIL. Um, you know, Dan, so you're kind of knocking division three <laughs> lacrosse when you say I'm not a college athlete. <laughs> well, right now, right now, you're not right now. You're not. Right. But no, got, oh, no. the financial revocations for me when I was in college as a division three athlete, it could have been enormous. <laughs> well, but it's interesting. So you say that, but you know, at the NAIA, right, the, uh, I wouldn't say competitor to the NCAA, but another uh, athletic association of, of much smaller schools or schools that invest a lot less in, in, in sports, you know, they already allowed uh, name, image, and likeness for the athletes uh, a year ago. Mm. And there are hundreds of NAIA athletes who are making money off of their name, image, and likeness. Some of it's as small as $100, you know, $50, $200, right? Um, others have made thousands of dollars. Um, and so, so the market's know, clearly there. So the market's there. And, and so I think with, with sort of Division One and Division Two and Three, but especially Division One athletes for the, with the NCAA, I think you're going to see lots of athletes, you know, make hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, and you'll see some make hundreds of thousands of dollars wow. for the use of their NIL. And it's, it's, and I think it's going to happen, you know, it's going to be slow to get to equilibrium, probably three to five years. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think we're going to see a pretty big splash. It's going to be the wild west for a while, isn't it? Yeah. It's going to be the wild west and it's going to be, you know, sort of, it's just going to be interesting to watch. 
I, I think the total dollars are in the hundreds of millions per year. Wow. Um, sort of when you start doing the math and, and I'm sort of including, okay, where's the, where's the video game, right? We you know mm-hmm. at some point we're going to have a, a college basketball video game again, a college football video game, maybe some other sports too, right? Other sports have gotten popular since they canceled the, uh, the NCAA uh, men's basketball waiting for that college highlight video game. game. It could be exciting stuff <laughs> or lacrosse, right. Oh, or, you know, be still soft, my heart. Why not softball instead of baseball, you know, or, or, or baseball or both. Right. Yep. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think, so I think in that sense, that's what, that's where, where you're going to get to hundreds of millions of dollars. So do you, do you figure this is kind of settled now, right? Is, is, are the legal actions with Alston and NIL, is this now settled law or is there going to be further legal action that comes out of this? Is the NCA going to say, not yet, not on my watch kind of thing? It sort of puts one chapter behind, which is the NCAA's ability to, to have these rules across all of the schools, you know? Yep. Um, but at the same time, I think it opens up new cases. So there's a current case, the house case and the Prince case, Sedona Prince and, and, um, Grant house are both, um, college athletes who are suing for, uh, on behalf of name image and likeness, you know, in, in, in class actions. And they're, what they're looking for is to make sure that, that there isn't a slide back mm-hmm. to make sure that the NCAA doesn't come up with, res- with two restrictive NIR- NIL rules, but also they're looking for past damages oh. from the past four years because you know, it's the, that's how the antitrust laws work, right? You're allowed to sue for past damages. So, oh, so you're basically allowed to claw back what should have happened over the previous yeah, four years. Yeah, wow. exactly what should have happened. Right. And so we, we did that in the Alston case. So by the time it got to the Supreme court, it was really only about what, the NCAA is allowed to do. But, you know, three years ago, we got a $208 million settlement um, for the athletes and athletes began receiving their checks, you know, a year and a half or so ago. Um, and so I've even had some students who told me, hey, I got my check in the mail. It was, you know, $7,500 or, you know, $6,000 like or whatever Santa. it was. Yeah, exactly right. Do you get to but that, I mean, that must make you have a warm feeling in your in your heart? <laughs> I mean, it was really cool to see, you know, and to read and to see on Twitter a little bit athletes sort of saying, hey, I, you know, I, re- I received my check in the mail. Yeah. Um, and it, and so I think you'll see that sort of thing happening with with NIL. So that's sort of OK. But then that will eventually end because that that case will end uh, at some point. But then I think these new rules about why is it fifty nine hundred and eighty dollars? Right. Like we talked about, you know, that's such a specific number. If those athletes receive more than that, would the fans stop watching? Because that's sort of the defense, the NCAA. Right. Amateurism is why people come to college sports. It's why people come. Yeah, exactly. And and they have to sort of prove that. Um, and the, the, the players sort of have to prove that that's not the issue. And and so are not the reason why people watch. And so I think, you, I, you know, for better or worse, I think you're going to see more of these cases uh, unless Congress gets involved. Right. So. The NCAA is heavily lobbying Congress. Shocking. To yeah, shocking. To uh, to to pass a national law that sort of takes care of all this stuff. At the same time, the you know the athletes have some people on their side who are doing the same thing, and so who knows? You know, as you as you and I know, Congress doesn't get things done very quickly if it if it doesn't want to. So. Right, but also we talked we talked about this earlier in terms of the Supreme Court and their nine zero decision. This is potentially some the NCAA is kind of like big tech right now. Every kind of buddy likes to beat up on it a little bit. So I'm wondering if that might be a losing battle for their own right on the lobbying front. I sort of think so because you know we had thought you know, 
20 years ago. We thought, well, this is sort of an, an issue that can appeal both to, to conservatives and liberals because conservatives like competitive markets. I mean, at least they say they do, right? You know, we want competition. And if you're not allowing competition, we're going to put the kibosh on that. At the same time, liberals are thinking about the individual athletes as people and are they being exploited somehow, right? So we always thought that there was Good a, a way for that both, both sides. sides would benefit. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, you know, that seems to have happened somewhat with the Supreme Court. So I'm with you that I, I wonder who the NCAA is going to appeal to in Congress to help them out. Because, yeah, you're, they're, they're just like big tech right now. Everyone's sort of bashing on the NCAA. You score points against it. Well, OK, so yeah. you know, this all seems to kind of strike at the heart of the NCAA and its business model. I mean, where, where do they go from here? I mean, is this, is this the end of the NCAA? So I don't think so. I mean, it's real interesting, though. So, you know, one of the things that I've been pushing in each of these lawsuits uh, that I've testified in is trying to get the court to, to sort of balance the idea of the uniqueness of a sports league. You know, sports leagues need to have rules. Um, uh, you know, they come together and they create a joint product between two independent companies, basically, when two teams play a game. Right. So they have to have some sort of rules. And so we've been pushing that to we've been saying push it down to the conferences. If 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 each conference comes up with its own set of rules, right, then you have enough competition across the conferences that you don't have an antitrust problem. And at the same time, within a conference, they can say, look, we all want to be on the same field in terms of the rules about about recruiting and all that sort of stuff. And so you sort of have that now where the Ivy League has a different set of rules, okay. you know, for scholarships than say the you know the SEC or the Pac-12 does, right? So, and so I was going to say so so potentially as the NCAA's call it power diminishes, we might see a shift towards increasing power within the conferences. That's what I think. I mean, the conferences do all their own scheduling. They sign TV deals. If you think about deals. what the, yeah. yeah, exactly. If you think about what the NCAA does, it, it hosts a bunch of postseason tournaments, including the, the March Madness. Yeah, one very big it, basketball tournament. Yeah. One big basketball tournament and a bunch of other tournaments. Right. And um, and then it sort of monitors everything else. You know, it, 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 it determines whether athletes are eligible to even play college sports. You know, did they take the right courses in high school and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff? So it's sort of a monitoring agency. You know, originally, 100 plus years ago, it was really about the, the safety of the athletes, you know, and they've sort of gone away from that. Clearly, that's education. not important anymore. <laughs> right. Which is the saddest thing. So so they could sort of say, look, OK, conferences, you guys can deal with compensation and those issues. And, and I, again, I'm, I'm trying to put an optimist spin on this, but the NCAA could then refocus on education and protecting athletes from physical and emotional harm and things like that and, and stay out of their pockets. Mm. You know what I mean? Okay. So I tell you what, let me, I'm going to make a bunch of declarative statements right now. So this is, we'll call this the lightning round because I've seen a bunch of stuff on the internet, obviously recently and you know and with the internet clearly known for its measured and thoughtful response to things particularly those related to college sports right very measured very understood i'm going to read a bunch of statements and i want you to let me know if you agree or disagree with the statement and why you believe that is okay are you ready for the lightning round i am ready all right let's do this amateurism is now dead no it is still in place out there with lots of amateur sports associations, but definitely for the NCAA, it is disappearing. Okay. The NCAA, as we know it, is done. No, everyone loves March Madness, right? So they're going to still do that. And as we just discussed, I think that they'll, they'll sort of refocus on, on education and, and, and protecting the athletes. All right. So their mission may shift. All right. 
Yes. Schools are going to start cutting checks to athletes as soon as they possibly can. So the bigger schools are going to find a way to spend that $5,980. That, again, that weirdly specific number. Weirdly specific number, plus, you know, a laptop or a musical instrument. If you're a music major, they're allowed to pay for now, which they weren't before necessarily, or, you know, the internship or whatever. So the schools are going to sort of push that. But they're not going to be able just to write big checks or or throw cash into the locker room. All right. How about this one? Boosters can now legally make payments to recruits and athletes. No. Disagree. Disagree. Yeah. So those those rules are still in place and all these NIL laws are are, are, are trying to separate the boosters and the athletes. But, you know, you and I know that's going to be difficult, I think, to monitor. Yeah. OK, fair enough. All right. So how about this one? Only athletes in revenue sports like football and basketball are going to make money from NIL. Uh, no. You know, nine of the top 10 most followed college athletes are women. I saw that um, recently. Yeah. And so I think you're going to see a lot of people in lots of different sports do really well uh, as they sort of unlock their their, their creativity. I so think I, think I saw that a women's volleyball player was one of the first to really start generating conspicuous amounts of money from her social media feeds associated with that. So that's going to be fascinating to watch as it sort of balances the equilibrium between men's and women's sports and where those priorities start to shift. Yeah. And at some point, Title IX may may decide to weigh in on it, too. Okay, well, didn't think about that one. Okay, last one. And this as the sports marker, this is the one I'm kind of interested in your response. Conflicts between school sponsors and athlete sponsors are now inevitable. Yes. Agree. As yeah, as we see elsewhere in sports, right? We we see this all the time in Olympic sports and, and and even in sort of traditional team sports where an athlete has a different sponsor than say a team or a or you know a venue or whatever. So I think that those issues are going to have to be worked on. People like you are going to have to solve those problems, you know, and 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 put those sort of um, clauses into contracts. Um, that's why I sort of think the idea of the group licensing where the school and the player are on the same page. You know, I, I I think that's the easier equilibrium. Those groupings. Um, yeah. Dan Rasher cannot begin to thank you enough for spending this time. I know you're uh, you've got a lot of polls in your time right now. This is uh, obviously in the news quite a lot, and you're being asked to chime in. So spending this time with us to uh, break down some of these parts of this has been uh, very very valuable. So thanks so much for spending the time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Dave. Thanks a lot.